Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into influential, effective advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and non-profit cause groups. If you're one of the people that work to build advocacy and grow your community of advocates, then you're in the right place. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we speak with Laura Brigandi, the Senior Manager of Advocacy and Campaigns for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, known as PANCAN where she trains volunteers to engage in grassroots advocacy and outreach to their communities. Before joining PANCAN, Laura held various government affairs roles at the College of American Pathologists, American Federation of Musicians, and the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Laura holds a Bachelor of Arts in Government from Franklin and Marshall College and a Master's in Legislative Affairs from George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. In 2017, he received her certificate in PAC and Grassroots Management from the Public Affairs Council. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome Laura to today's show. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Okay, I hope right off the top, I didn't butcher the last name. No, you were fine. <laughs> Very good. So as we get started on this, I want you to tell people about PanCan and really what your mission is. Yeah, so PanCan is a fairly young organization as these things go. We started in 1999 when our founder lost her mother to pancreatic cancer, and she was looking for an organization like ours. And since it didn't exist, she decided to create it. Um, we were the first organization that was dedicated to fighting pancreatic cancer in a comprehensive approach by advancing scientific research, building community, sharing knowledge, and advocating for patients. Um, pancreatic cancer is the world's toughest cancer with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. The symptoms are often vague and you know it can indicate many different conditions within the abdomen or gastrointestinal tract, which means the majority of people with pancreatic cancer are diagnosed at a late stage when tumors are inoperable and the cancer has already spread. There's also no early detection test, so more research is really key to understanding and ultimately beating this disease. Um, that's why the bulk of the money we, that we raise goes towards research for early detection and discovering new treatment options. Um, last year, we invested $22 million in research funding 
Uh, we have a competitive peer-reviewed grant process, uh, and we also have several of our own initiatives. Uh, I'm not the best person to speak to that. I'm definitely not the research expert, but I encourage you to go to pancan.org research to learn about the work that we do. We, we also have a call center for patients. PanCAN's Patient Services is an incredible free resource for anyone facing pancreatic cancer. It's the first place that you should call after a diagnosis or at any point in your journey. Our, our case managers provide a list of specialists in your area. They can help you find a clinical trial, get genetic or molecular testing to help with determining the right treatment or provide information on things like diet and nutrition, support groups, palliative care, and more. And then of course, there's our volunteer network. We have affiliates in 38 states, each led by volunteers on the ground. They work on raising awareness in their communities through outreach, survivor and caregiver engagement, community communications and social media, and of course, advocating with members of Congress. Um, they also help us put on our Purple Stride event, which is a 5K walk in 59 cities across the country that raises money for pancreatic cancer research. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot. And that's great news because my initial thought was, if you've been on this earth for any period of time, you know people that have had pancreatic cancer and it is not pleasant uh, to watch someone go through that process. Uh, and so I think that the work that you're doing and, and the fact that the founder uh, in turn said, wait a minute, what's out there? Uh, didn't see what she thought was appropriate to be out there and took it as her mission to change that. And I think that that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, and there's a story behind that. There's got to be a a because the behind the cause story there. Uh, so with all that, your role naturally is the advocacy side. So what is your priority with the 117th Congress or any Congress that meets? Well, you know, our primary advocacy issue is increasing federal funding for pancreatic cancer research. That has been our goal uh, pretty much since we started doing advocacy and will probably continue to be our goal. Um, the majority of federal research funding, you know, around 80% comes from, uh, around 80% of pancreatic cancer research funding comes from the federal government. So, you know, it's absolutely critical that we continue to advocate for increases in cancer research. Um, the federal funding generally comes from two different sources. The one that most people are familiar with is the funding through the National Cancer Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. And you know, we, along with the broader medical research community, advocate for annual increases to ensure that researchers have the resources that they need to continue to make advances in diagnosis, testing, and treatment of cancer. The second source is the Department of Defense through their congressionally, dire congressionally directed medical research program. And not as many people know about that. And um, that's for the VA, isn't it? It's through the Department of Defense. It's just, for it's... Um, a separate program. It focuses on um, 
research for diseases that impact the military, veterans, their family, and also the American public as a whole. So, you know, pancreatic cancer within that program, we have our own dedicated research program that was established in 2019. And that was largely due to PANCAN's advocacy efforts. And the research that's done at the DOD is complementary to the research done at the NCI. It's focused on high risk, high reward projects, which, you know, it's so necessary with a disease like pancreatic cancer. So that begs the question, what is your biggest hurdle when it comes to getting that additional kind of life-saving, if you will, cancer research funding uh, from Congress? What's, what's the biggest negative that comes to you? Well, for a while, I think I would have said awareness that, you know, we would say Department of Defense and a lot of people would say, really? Or why? Or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, shouldn't you be going to, you know, the NIH for this? Um, You know, it's not as well known, but it is a critical part of federal research. Um, You know, and since now that we have been advocating on this for a couple of years, more people are familiar with it. Our advocates are are certainly familiar with it and, um, you know, skilled at talking about it, but members of Congress are also more familiar with it. They hear about it, not just from us. There are are several other groups that have their own dedicated program. There's also um, a peer-reviewed cancer research program that is kind of a catch-all for, I think it's 17 different cancers, which we used to be part of that for several years. And then uh, a couple of years ago, just got bumped up to our own dedicated program, so. Yeah. The, the reason why I ask about the biggest hurdle, because it, I've had clients and organizations and we've gone to the Hill, uh, you know, talking about funding and we either get, how are we going to pay for it? Everybody has their hand out. Um, how do you address those things? I mean, we, we do get those questions too, but I think probably not as much as some other causes. I mean, cancer is one of the few bipartisan issues left in Washington. It's the one thing that everybody agrees cancer is bad. Um, and everybody recognizes that, yeah, everybody knows somebody who has had some form of cancer and, you know, everyone understands the urgent need for better treatments and better early detection methods. So we don't get a lot of resistance in Congress. You know, sometimes we get people who will push back a little bit, like, you know, we've given you a lot of increases over the years, but very rarely do we get a solid no, we're not going to support you. Most people are generally um, sympathetic and willing to listen and and recognize the value of increasing federal funding. Yeah, and and contrary to what maybe the layman out there thinks, they're really not the Grinch that stole Christmas. They, They really do understand the role that government plays in being able to advance this. Uh, But, you know, Periodically, they, 
they they want to make you earn it sometimes in the conversation. So they want it, they want your reasoning behind it. So let's spin a little bit off to the side more towards the advocacy here. Coming up in your professional career, you worked for different organizations. How has that developed your understanding of how to effectively build a community of advocates for PANCAM? So my experience when I started in this field, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I started kind of just trying a whole bunch of different things and seeing what fit. So throughout my career, I've done a little bit of lobbying. I've done some PAC work. I've done communications, grassroots. And, and so I have a good sense of how it all fits together. Um, as I've progressed in my career, I've focused more specifically on grassroots and have worked on developing grassroots programs at a couple different organizations. And, you know, I think the thing that really makes PanCan special for me in my career is that the people are volunteers they're, and they're so passionate about what they do. And that was, you know, what motivated me to, to work for a nonprofit. I had done associations before and, um, there's just nothing like the passion of somebody who has lost someone to pancreatic cancer or who is a survivor, um, that they are just so passionate about what they do. They're so motivated to make a difference. Um, and that really energizes me, you know, I think well, it makes me want to do my job even better because I want to make things better for them. You know, I and, and I agree with that. And there's a lot, you know, we could go down a, a lot of different paths with this. But one thing I would like to say to you is that you're fortunate in that you don't have to start the engine. Their engine is usually started. What you have to do is teach them how to drive and where to go and how to how to become more effective with where they take the car. You're, you're kind of the driver's ed for them. Exactly. Uh, how they get to where they want to go safely and as efficiently uh, uh, as possible. And I greatly appreciate the passion thing. I, I began uh, working in politics and I began, uh, and I was elected three different times and I will tell you, I hated it. Uh, and, uh, and I hated it for many different reasons that we won't get into here. But I found my passion in teaching people that they can make a difference. You know, the preamble of the Constitution does not begin with I, the king, or me, the president, or we, the Congress. It begins with we, the people. And grassroots advocacy is the people. And so I'm with you on that, and I, and I agree with that passion. So with that, and what you do, is personal storytelling really important to your advocacy messaging? Or do you think it's sometimes goes a little too far. I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, it's the number one thing that we tell people, you know, no one else can tell your story. Lobbyists can recite statistics or make policy arguments, but, you know, a lobbyist can't talk about losing their parent or their spouse or their sibling. They can't talk about what it's like to go through chemotherapy or surgery or 
to be told to get your affairs in order because your cancer is too advanced for treatment. You know, we tell our volunteers that you can give this disease a face and a name. And, you know, statistics are great and statistics are, are certainly valuable, but you can't, you can ignore statistics in a way that you can't ignore a real person sitting in front of you telling their story. So it's, it's absolutely essential to what we do and, and what our advocates do. And, you know, one of the great presidential communicators or is listed as one of the great presidential communicators was Ronald Reagan. And he began the process during State of the Unions of pointing people out and telling their personal story at the State of the Union. Now you can't go to a State of the Union that isn't just loaded with one after another of the ability to tell their personal story. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. That storytelling is the vital link and what they can do that nobody else can do for them. And it is their ability to tell them. So how do you grow your advocates? How do you get more? <laughs> well, so our advocacy program is part of our larger volunteer structure. Like I said, we have 59 affiliates across the country and each affiliate has its own volunteer leadership. Um, so we have an advocacy chair in each affiliate and they are our most experienced tier of advocates, essentially. They go through our volunteer onboarding process. They get a guidebook for their role and then we train them several times throughout the year to keep them up to date on our advocacy campaigns and our legislative ask. Um, and then we kind of set them loose in their communities and say, you know, help us recruit other people, help us train other people to be involved in advocacy. We give each affiliate certain members of Congress based on the geographic area that they cover. So um, we ask our advocacy chairs to recruit an advocacy committee by identifying a volunteer in each congressional district that they cover and then they're responsible for activating their advocacy committee when we launch a campaign and passing on the, the campaign toolkit, encouraging them to um, contact their member of Congress, you know, or come to advocacy day, whatever, whatever the request is, they're, they're the ones kind of communicating that message to their own community. Do you, well, I'm gonna ask, uh, when someone calls into the hotline and needs help, do you also refer them to the ability to be a part of the community and share, uh, you know, because they're all in the same boat? Uh, and then is that used? And I don't want to say this, and I'm, I'm very delicate on how I want to approach this. I don't want to use it as a recruitment tool, but does it, I, I would tend to think that it helps them. If you're the person that has the cancer, uh, it helps you to want to be engaged and involved. So is that a way that you can help them by helping them become an advocate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, if someone calls patient services and is speaking to a case manager about their disease, it's certainly not the first thing that we're going to offer, but it is generally some, you know, would you like to connect with people in your community, either for support or to share stories, to hear from 
a survivor, a lot of times it gives people hope just to talk to somebody who's a 10 or 15 year survivor because they don't know anyone who's survived 10 or 15 years with this disease. Um, and we do end up, we, we, our volunteers will generally steward those new people and, um, you know, maybe get them involved in taking one advocacy action, just respond to an action alert. And then if they do that and they want to do more, well, maybe call your member of Congress, um, you know, maybe come to a, a district meeting or, you know, now they're all virtual, come to a virtual meeting, um, you know, and, and kind of work your way up through that process. But it, it is, advocacy is definitely an avenue for a lot of people. That's what they need to keep going. Um, you know, when you lose someone to pancreatic cancer, the severity of the disease is it's often sudden and it, you know, it's always devastating. So a lot of people deal with their grief by wanting to channel it into something productive and advocacy is that thing. It's incredibly empowering for them to know that they've made a difference that because of what they're doing, someone in the future may not experience the same loss that they did because they've helped to raise awareness. They've helped to secure research funding that will lead to better treatments. And I would think that it's got to be therapeutic for them. Yeah. I mean, we, we've heard from people that uh, our annual fly-in is kind of their way, their annual way of remembering their loved one. They come to DC and they advocate and that's how they honor their, their loved one. So you were talking about the structure and kind of your advocacy tree that goes from the beginning and what you do and how it goes down through the affiliates and number of states that you have these affiliates. And then you, you kind of have an advocacy chair, if you will, and then you create the advocacy committee and everything else. Do you kind of do a train the trainer program, if you will, of how to train other advocates in, in, in the local areas or, or do you control most of the training through your organization, your, what you do specifically? We do most of the training ourselves. Um, we do try to make it as simple as possible so that the toolkit is very plug and play. You know, we will give you the instructions. We will give you the email template. All you have to do is like fill in your personal story. And, you know, the, this is step one, two, and three of how you get that message to your member of Congress. So there's not um, as much training that's needed for participating in a campaign. Obviously, we train all of our advocates who participate in our our fly-in or hill day, um, but otherwise it's generally we're training the advocacy chairs and giving them the tools and resources so that it doesn't take much effort for their advocacy committees to get involved. But we have had situations where, you know, maybe we want them to coach one of their committee members on the best way to, to talk to a member of Congress, maybe don't mention whether or not you voted for them or, you know, be a little softer in your language, something like that. And we do, you know, on a the do's and don'ts. Needed, as needed basis. Yeah. All the do's and don'ts that we all need right. to know when we're going to go meet with uh, elected officials and their and, and their staff. So in June, you had a very successful you hold you hold Pan Pan Action Week. Uh, and and I read how successful it was. This year it was really virtual. 
in the past you do the fly-in and everything else. Tell the audience how you run the, or at least this year, how you had to run this advocacy outreach. Yeah, so this was our second virtual Hill Day, actually. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> last year, of course, we had to pivot at the last minute. It was, I think, early April when we realized, you know, this thing isn't going away in a couple of weeks like we thought. We're, we're probably going to have to come up with an alternate plan. So we pulled together a virtual event, but it was much smaller than our in-person event. Typically, we have over 600 people flying into D.C., and last year, we relied a lot on our volunteer advocacy leaders to make it happen. And while it was certainly impactful, it was nowhere near as polished and professional as what we were able to do this year. We learned a lot of lessons over the last year about putting together virtual events. You know, since one of our, our major fundraising sources is our Purple Stride event, that also had to become virtual. So everyone's gotten much more comfortable with Zoom. We've figured out what works and what doesn't to keep people engaged and how best to replicate the feel of an in-person event. You know, we want to have that sense of community, even though we're not all in the same room. So this year we started with Voices in Action, which was a... Oh, I'm out. Absolutely love that that's called Voices in Action. And I just don't know why. I thought you might appreciate that. <laughs> so that was a pre-recorded virtual event with a live chat. So that way we didn't have to worry about technical glitches, but participants could still talk to each other and feel that sense of community. Um, we had some celebrity hosts. We invited a couple members of Congress to participate. Um, and we featured several advocates and a pancreatic cancer researcher to tell their story and inspire everyone. And then we concluded with a tribute to those we've lost to pancreatic cancer. So that yeah. was Monday. Then, and, and, I, and I saw that, and, and that was an excellent piece, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, it, it definitely, you can... See, it was a, a year's worth of learning. If you had seen the one that we did last year, you, <laughs> you don't have we don't have to go down that road. Right. I mean, I it, it wasn't it, it wasn't was bad, bad, but it was I thought it was realistic know. and I thought it was emotional, but not too over the top. Yeah. So so then what day two you do something different, day three you do something different. What are those? Yeah. So day two was call Congress Day where we ask all of our advocates to call their members of Congress and deliver our message to Capitol Hill. Um, we also have an action alert so that constituents could email members of Congress as well. We generated over 12,000 calls and emails and engaged advocates in all 50 states. And then um, we also invited about 225 people to participate in virtual meetings this year. So we provided training for them on Tuesday afternoon, and then Wednesday, we sent them off for virtual Hill Day. So, you know, again, we were, we had some experience with doing the virtual meetings. I did find that this year, a lot more congressional offices were comfortable with video meetings. That's been a huge shift in the last 12 months. Um, when we were doing this last year, 
definitely less than half the offices were comfortable with video. Most of them wanted conference calls. And this year it was completely the opposite. Most of them were on video, even if the um, you know congressional staffer didn't turn their video on, they at least wanted to see us. And um, you know, very few asked for just a conference call. Did you, did you have more members of Congress themselves actually jump in or participate at any given point in time? Because I'd heard that from other organizations that because they weren't running around as much <laughs> and that they didn't have all the clamor in the office, that it was easy for them from time to time to jump in. Uh, did you find that at all in your case? Uh, well, we we actually ended up doing our event the week that they, the day that they were voting on Juneteenth, making that a federal holiday. So we initially had a lot of member level meetings scheduled and a lot of them ended up being staffed because members had to be on the floor to vote on that. And um, one never knows when that's gonna hit them. Right, that's the kind of thing you can't predict whether it's virtual or in-person. Um, you know, we've had days where we have a ton of member meetings because there's just not a lot going on. And then we have days where it's crazy on the Hill. We did have, you know, somebody who was on video with their member of Congress and they're just walking through the hall. So they're getting a virtual tour from the member's cell phone. But, um, you know, it's the walk and talk. a different experience. <laughs> well, we've all been through the walk and talk on Capitol Hill. Uh, Let's take a little sidestep here is, and I know that we're talking about using technology in a really positive way, uh, but is advocacy technology taking over that personal grassroots engagement or do you think it complements it? I think it complements it. Uh, you know, I think, I guess it depends what you mean by advocacy technology. There's it, it, that has really in itself grown a lot over the last couple of years, um, you know. And I think doing the video meetings is actually a great thing for advocacy because it allows people to um, participate in meetings from wherever they are. You know, we've had people who are not able to come to Washington for a fly-in that were able to participate in a virtual meeting. And, you know, we hope that that will continue. Um, we're not sure what it's gonna look like in the future, but we're planning for, you know, the possibility of hybrid events, depending on what Congress is willing to do. So um, well, and I think that I has think, been a great benefit. Yeah, and I, and I think the technology like that, the ability to adapt to the things that are there from their side of the ledger, of, of jumping in and being able to, uh, to to work with that. How important is relationship development for your organization? That's a, a big part of what we do. It's really the, the cornerstone of our advocacy. And, you know, that's another advocacy trend that I think has been changing. You know, you talk about technology, 20 years ago, action alerts were the hot new thing, and that has kind of gotten to a saturation point. So, you know, we're now moving towards the more personal interaction, the one-on-one -on -one interaction, and that really is how we get our, 
our champions in Congress, really, we, you know, for as an example, one of our champions in Congress is Representative McKinley in West Virginia. And unlike a lot of our champions, he doesn't have a personal connection to pancreatic cancer. He's a champion because we have an advocate who is his constituent. She spent 15 years building a relationship with him and his office. And, you know, he will say he supports us because Annette asked him to, you know, and it's, it's that personal one-on-one relationship that has built that. Yeah. And by building those relationships, you, you get to the point where it's who knows who, who knows who. Right. Uh, which I love, which I love that, that saying, because it is vitally important. You, you, uh, we all like dealing with people that we know. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while to get to know people and it takes a while to build that relationship and, and, to, and to build that trust. Uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think advocacy? I think it's an essential part of our democracy, really. I mean, it's members of Congress are elected to represent us, you know, they work for their constituents and they can't do that. They can't represent the will of the people if they don't know what the people want and what they care about. You know, the only way to do that is to make your voice heard, you know, to tell your story, to advocate. If you, if you don't tell your representative or your senator what you want them to do, then who will? Yeah, you know, that uh, that goes to the old political saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah. That's, and that's basically what happens. So in your capacity, you're running a large advocacy program, and that, and that can be hard. It, it has its challenges in here with that. So what, what are your biggest challenges? Is it time? Is it staff bandwidth? Or is it something else? Yeah, I think staff bandwidth is probably one of the biggest challenges. There's only two of us who are dedicated to advocacy. Um, You know, my boss does more of the the government affairs side of things. She works with our lobbyists and I work more with our grassroots program with our volunteers. And so, you know, that's, there's only so much that two people can do in a day. And that is why we rely a lot on our volunteers um, to be such strong leaders in their communities, you know, we couldn't possibly recruit and train thousands of advocates, just the two of us. So, um, you know, we, the way things are structured, it's done so, so that, um, we can really be a volunteer driven and volunteer led organization. So, but, you know, it, Obviously, the more people you have, the more stuff you can get done. So well, but 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 having that volunteer structure allows you to have so many more arms in so many places that you yourself uh, and and your colleague would never be able to reach. That uh, time flies, and time has flown during this conversation. So, do you have any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to say? Um, I don't, I mean, I think we, this has been a great conversation, you know, I think we've 
covered a lot of ground, um, talked about a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think we have too, and we've raised awareness. And that's a, yes. absolutely what your organization does. So Laura, how can people reach you or PanCan for some more information? Yeah, well, if anybody is looking for information about pancreatic cancer, if you've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer or you know someone who has, I encourage you to contact patient services. You can go to pancan.org. We have an 800 number that um, you know you will get connected with a case manager who can provide all of the information that you need for your pancreatic cancer journey. Um, if you want to contact me to talk about advocacy, you can reach me at lbrigandi at pancan.org. Um, and hopefully you'll have that in the show notes. So I don't have to spell out my name for you, but <laughs> I will have that in the show notes for you. Laura. That's wonderful. That's great. So that's a wrap of today's wonderful conversation with people that are doing wonderful work on behalf of the pancreatic cancer community. Laura, I thank you so much for being on the show and to you and to all your efforts. Absolutely all the best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for the advocacy engagement tip. Today, we continue talking about coalitions. Here are a few additional points to consider when partnering with groups to form coalitions. Consider new and diverse partners. Look for organizations with whom you have never worked with before. Some of the best coalitions are formed with what others may perceive as strange bedfellows. More points to consider next week. We are proud to have Rap Index as a sponsor to the show. Let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's rapindex.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast today. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and unwavering passion for advocacy. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.